this morning, we have three scripture readings from Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 18, and then Luke chapter 23. Listen to the word of the Lord. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. From the Gospel of Luke, two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious God, we come before you once again to place our lives here in front of your open word. Human words will not suffice, and so we pray that you will speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that in doing so, you would transform us 
according to the word made flesh, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, we're focusing on the Lord's Prayer, and we're taking some time each week to, uh, to look at the prayer line by line, this prayer that is so familiar to us, this prayer that is a cultural icon. And, uh, and as Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke, he invites us to pray it just as literally as we do every single week and as we did several minutes ago. And in Matthew's Gospel, he says, pray like this, and so there's a sense in which this This prayer is meant to be a pattern uh, to guide our prayer life. And as we take time to think about each line and the words that we're saying and what they mean, it helps to enrich our understanding of the prayer. As you know, uh, the, the early church prayed this prayer three times a day, in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. You can actually read about this in, it's called the Didache, which is the teaching um, of the church in the, in the uh, first century of the early church and they write about how they are called to pray this prayer three times a day. Um, And so it's interesting that we would think about this and my hope of course is that as we take time on Sunday mornings to reflect on the words that we're praying that it will enrich our understanding of the prayer whenever we choose to pray it. And today we focus on the very next line. So let's go ahead and say it together. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now this is a challenging sermon for us in many ways. As we look at this, we realize that Jesus is inviting us and calling us to, whenever we pray, to ask God for forgiveness. Now, I don't know about you, but for a lot of us, it's, it's hard to understand why do we need to ask forgiveness three times a day, or even once a day, or even once a week. Why do we need to ask forgiveness so, so often? Doesn't that just kind of leave us feeling in a negative, kind of guilty state all the time if we do that? And, and besides, it seems like we don't actually do that much bad stuff. You know, like, I mean, I didn't murder anybody last week. Um, it's been a few weeks at least. Just kidding. I didn't, um, you know, I haven't stolen anything. I'm faithful to my wife and kids. I mean, why do, I, why do we need to ask for forgiveness? And, uh, and I'm pretty, you know, I'm a pretty good person. And some people say, I try to be a good person. I don't really want to have to feel like I need to ask for forgiveness because I try to be a good person. And if I know that I have to ask forgiveness all the time, then it feels like I'm not doing a very good job trying so hard to be a good person. So there's many people who think I can't even think of what I would even ask God forgiveness for if I ask God for forgiveness three times a day. How do I do that? And when we find ourselves in this kind of a thinking pattern, like I don't know what I would ask God for forgiveness, it's helpful to ask ourselves the question, well, what, what constitutes the need for forgiveness? What constitutes the need for forgiveness? So let's take a little moment and and reflect on this. You've probably heard of the seven deadly sins. Maybe you've heard of the seven deadly sins. We can put the list up here. Um, This is a, it's a really interesting list that the Desert Fathers, I love this list, the Desert Fathers identified these as seven sort of root causes or underlying conditions of the heart that are what lead to all the other kinds of sins um, that we would 
commit in our lives. And when I look at this list, I don't know about you, but there are at least four of those that I struggle with on a weekly basis. Let's take sloth, for example. A lot of people think that sloth means laziness, and you think about the lazy sloth, right, who sits on a tree. But sloth is really not about laziness. It's indifference. It's, it's, it's the, the notion that I know that I'm called to respond to someone in need and to say or to think to myself, oh, someone else will take care of that. And that's sloth. It's, in, it's indifference. Or you could take envy. I struggle with envy. I envy certain things from certain people. Um, and so these, this list, if we reflect on that, uh, we, can, we can understand a little bit. And it's kind of humorous. Uh, I'll do a series on this at, at Lent at some point because it's funny because this is kind of like a cultural icon as well. If you've ever seen the TV show Gilligan's Island, you might know that every single character on Gilligan's Island represents one of the seven deadly sins. So that can be some homework for you to go and explore that a little bit. Um, but I can tell you that on an, any given week, whether in thought, in word, or in deed, I struggle at least with several of these. Um, and these sins are sins of commission. They're sins that we commit, whether in thought or in word or in deed or in our hearts when we focus our mind on my desire to have what somebody else has, then I commit envy in my heart, right? So those are the sins of commission. And then there are sins of omission. These are things that we're called to do in a way that we're called to live. And sometimes we fail to live it out. So if you think about the fruit of the Spirit, for example, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We're called to embody those in our lives, but man, how often do I struggle with patience? Or what about gentleness? And so these are sins of omission because we're called to live a certain way and we fail to do that from time to time. Right, okay, so I think, and I don't want to belabor this point too much because I think most of us are here because we already know of our need for forgiveness. We walk into these doors well aware as Christians that this is the heart of what it means to be a Christian is to seek God's forgiveness. So we can see our need for that when we stop to think about it. In the men's Bible study on Tuesday morning, one of the guys asked the question, he said, well, how come some churches say debts and some churches say trespasses, and some churches say sins. So which is it? Is it sins, is it debts, or is it trespasses? And of course the answer is yes. But, um, but there are some, some interesting things. Ma in Matthew's gospel, Jesus records, uh, uh, Matthew records Jesus teaching one way, and Luke records Jesus teaching another way. Remember, Jesus spoke Aramaic. He didn't speak Greek, and so what the translators have to do is Matthew and Luke, they have to say, okay, Jesus said this word in Aramaic, and we've got to take this idea, and we've got to translate it in a way that everyone can understand, and Luke says that um, he has Jesus saying, forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors, and Matthew said, well, no, Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So obviously Jesus said one thing, but each of them chose a different word in Greek to express what he was trying to say, which is then translated into English and all kinds of other modern languages around the world. I just want to show you a couple of things. Forgive us our debts is what Matthew tells us. 
is what Jesus prayed. And I think that's probably the closest uh, to what Jesus actually prayed. Forgive us our sins, Luke then tells us. And then in a commentary on Matthew, uh, right after the Lord's Prayer, uh, Matthew says this. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you don't, vice versa. So in Matthew, it's debts in the prayer. If you forgive, others, or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then he gets to the commentary and he replaces debts with trespasses. If you forgive others their trespasses. So which is it? Uh, what do these three we words mean? Debts, sins, and trespasses. Well, on one level, they in essence kind of mean the same thing, which is why they're used interchangeably in the scriptures. But there are some um, nuances, difference, differences between them. So let's take a look at each of these words. The word debt is in Greek, it's the word ophilamata. And it's a word that literally has to do with owing somebody something else. You know all about this, right? It's usually in the first century, it's the context is usually about money. And so the reason I think that this is the word that Jesus probably used, or at least closest to this, is because Jesus uses the metaphor of owing debts many, many times over and over again in the Gospels. And the reason why is because Jesus was teaching and ministering to working class people. Everybody in first century Palestine knew what it was like to be in debt. And so let's just say you're a subsistence farmer and you make your annual income on a harvest that comes in once a year. And so that's a long time to have your entire annual income in one year. And so what happens is as the year goes by, people run out of their crops or they might need to borrow money to, to get seeds for their next year's crops um, or somebody in the family might get sick and then they have to borrow money to take care of that person uh, in the family. And what you would owe then would be a share of your crops. And so if you couldn't pay it back, what would happen? Let's say there was a drought and your harvest didn't come through. Well, one of three things would happen. You can go back to the person and you can beg for forgiveness. And hopefully you'll have a gracious landowner. Many of these people were uh, sharecroppers, you know, and so they rented um, portions of land that was owned by somebody else. So you go back to the landowner and you say, please forgive me my debt. I cannot pay it. Um, I'll give me some more time or whatever it is and, um, I, and, I'll, and I'll pay it back eventually. And so maybe then if that person forgives you or maybe you have to go to somebody else then and borrow some money to pay that person back and then the debts start to rack up. If you still can't pay it off, one of two things happened in the Greco-Roman world. You either become a slave or an indentured servant to pay off your debt or you're thrown into debtor's prison. And both of these are talked about in the Gospels and various parables that Jesus gives. And so what would you do if your debt was so great that it would take the rest of your life to pay it off or you couldn't even pay it off even if you worked the rest of your life? How would you get out of slavery or how would you get out of de debtor's prison? Well, the only way was if you knew somebody who could bail you out, somebody who cared about you enough 
to pay off your debt. And in those days, that person was called a redeemer. And the redeemer would come in and pay off your debt and pay for you to come out of slavery. And the process, of course, was called redemption. And we know all about that, right? Because as Christians, this is the metaphor of, of how Jesus, Jesus worked on the cross. He bought us out through his life, death, and resurrection. He bought us out of slavery and redeemed us back into the relationship with the Father. And so this metaphor is all throughout the New Testament. Jesus is the redeemer. He paid the price because of his compassion and mercy so that we could be set free. And so this is the idea behind debt. But what does it mean to be in debt to God? Forgive us our debts, but what kind of debts do we owe God? Well, as you know, God created everything. God formed us in our mother's womb. God created the sun that warms the earth. Sometimes it's a little too strong for us. God gave us water to give us life. Sometimes we wish we had more of it. Um, but God sustains every breath that we breathe. And so what do we owe God? We owe God our lives. We owe God our, our entire existence. Um, and it's only possible because God has given us life. And so we owe God our whole life. We owe God our honor, our glory, and our thanks, and our praise, and our obedience. All of these things we owe God. Now, what are we asking forgiveness for is all of the times when I don't do that, all of the times when I forget or I turn away from God or I choose my own way instead of God's way. Then I have violated my relationship with God and all of a sudden I have a different kind of debt. And this kind of debt requires making amends. This is what Jesus is saying. Every time that we have turned our back, on what Jesus wanted us to do, or every time we slighted God or didn't act the way that we were supposed to with one of his other children, we became indebted. And I don't know about you, but when it comes to forgiveness, I have such a huge pile of debt in my life. I could not pay it off if I had to work to pay it off for the rest of my life. And I think that it's true for every one of us, whether or not we realize it. And so here's what Jesus is saying, Pray and ask for forgiveness, and God is the kind of landowner who will forgive you your debt no matter how great it is. He is the most generous being, and he has sent a redeemer to come and redeem you back. Okay, so that's debts. Um, the second idea, forgive us our sins, this is the word hamartia. Hamartia is the word for sin, and this is a word that literally means to miss the mark. It's an archery term, right? So the archer would pull the bow, the arrow back into the bow and shoot the arrow, right? And, and sometimes the arrow would hit the bullseye, and that's hitting the target. But if sometimes the arrow goes off to one side or to the other, or sometimes the arrow falls short of the target, and that's called hamartia falling short of the target. We get this, we understand this, because when it comes to sin as a metaphor, I knew the way I was supposed to go, and instead I went this way, or I went that way, or I fell short. And when I explain this or talk with people about this, 
Um, even like atheists or agnostics, I don't have lots of conversations with atheists, but I do have a few atheist friends, and we occasionally have conversation, and they say, you Christians are all about sin, and that just leaves you guilty and making everybody else feel guilty all the time, and, and I say, well, just tell, tell me, um, tell, tell, let me just share with you what this word really means. Is, is the, do you, can you ever think of a time in your life when you did not live up to your ideals? Was there ever been a time where you fell short of who you wanted to be in the world? And I don't know one person, I've never met one person who hasn't said, yes, of course, I fail to live up to who I'm supposed to be all the time, whether I believe in God or not. That's hamartia. That's sin. It's falling short. Forgive us for the times when we have fallen short. Forgive us for when we have strayed from your path and bring us back to the right path. A straightened arrow, you should say, right? Okay, when we talk about trespasses, this is another word in the Greek. It's, uh, I might not even put it on there. I think I forgot to highlight it, but it's called paraptomata. Paraptomata is the word for trespasses. And so in this line, when we talk about trespasses, we're talking about what? Infringing on someone else's rights. The Greek implies, I was, I was once close to you, uh, and we were connected, but I turned against you, and I stepped on your toes. I violated you, uh, and I have trespassed on your property, intellectual, emotional, physical, spiritual, whatever. When we think about trespassing, we, we think about signs like this, right? Private property, no trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted. That means I have a right to this property, and you're not meant to be on it unless I give you permission. So there are some things that are off limits. And in our lives, we are routinely violating one another in this way, because I say things that, uh, that you didn't give me permission to say, or I do things that you didn't give me permission to do, and it wasn't my right to do that, and we do this towards God as well, and it's an offense. Whether it's accidental or intentional, we violate uh, other people, and whenever we violate someone else, we are violating God, right? So the clear picture of, of trespasses, paraptomata, in the Bible is in the Genesis account. Adam and Eve, our first ancestors, were given this beautiful garden. You can have anything you want in this luscious, amazing, fruit-bearing garden, but there's this one tree that has a no trespassing sign on it. This is mine, God says. You can stay, you can have everything else, but you can't have this. And of course, what did Adam and Eve want the most was the one that they couldn't have, and so they trespassed against God. They violated God's property. They violated God. And so when we sin against God, we are also indebted to God, and at times we trespass against God. And we do that not only towards God, but we do that to God when we do it towards one another. I have trespassed. I have fallen away. I have given offense. And so has every one of you, I suppose. Uh, Which is why Jesus is giving us this prayer Not so that we will go around thinking about how guilty we are all the time, but so that we can release it through our our ask for forgiveness. 
so that we can be free from the shackle of our guilt by naming it, facing it, releasing it, and trusting in God's forgiveness in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I wish that the prayer stopped right there because this is where it really starts to get hard. Jesus doesn't even stop it with a, pe- with a period. He, there's like a comma there, not a period, and the, line forgi- and the line continues, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, this is the part of the prayer that I really don't like. This is the hard part. Because what we're really saying here is God, in the same way and to the same degree that I am forgiving others, I ask you to forgive me. Do you see that? Wow, I don't really want to pray that prayer. Do you? Uh, This is a really big idea that God wants to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to us but he expects that that grace will rub off on us to others. And that one of the ways in which we heal the world is that we learn to become more gracious and more graceful with others. And part of what is broken in the world is that we hold resentments and we hold grudges and we try to get even and we cancel them completely. And this happens in politics, it happens in business, it happens in church, it happens in relationships and friendships, and it's part of the reason why we go to war in the world. We hold on to these things rather than letting them go and releasing them. And so Jesus is saying, to the degree that you're unwilling to forgive others is actually the degree to which you have received my forgiveness. And so it's not that if if you forgive others, then God will forgive you. But the degree to which you forgive others is communicates the fruit of the tree and how healthy the tree is in receiving God's forgiveness. I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, somewhere now, I trust, however, that that there's some level of hyperbole here. That Jesus isn't saying that for those of you who struggle and struggle and struggle to forgive, that Jesus is going to, uh, that Jesus will grant that forgiveness and will honor that effort. But at somehow, somewhere along the way, uh, he is saying, if you're not willing to do this towards someone, but I have forgiven you a lifetime of transgressions, that's a problem. That's a problem we've got to work on. And so in Matthew 18, Simon Peter comes up to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? In some translations, it says other church members, but um, but literally it means my brother. And so if you take it literally, that, that would be Andrew. And you just maybe Andrew was like really irritating or something, you know. I've forgiven this guy. How many times do I have to forgive Andrew over here, you know? Now, the, the, the Jews actually debated how often you had to forgive. And in later Jews, Judaism, they, they came up with a number. They said three times. Three times, that's enough. You have to forgive three times. And so one commentator suggests that, well, maybe, uh, maybe Simon Peter is like doubling it and giving one more for good measure. Is seven times enough? Uh, or maybe Andrew had like already offended him six times, you know? Like, we just got to do this one more time, right, Jesus? You know, and, and Jesus says not seven times, but 77 times 
you have to forgive your brother. Well, where does he get 77 times? Well, in the book of Genesis, there is a guy by the name of Lamech. And Lamech is the great, 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 great grandson of Adam and Eve. And Lamech says, if anyone wrongs me, I am going to get them back 77 times. And so it's a picture of getting vengeance and restitution. And Jesus inverts that and says, well, you're going to forgive 77 times, which is basically an unlimited amount, right? An unlimited amount of times we're called to forgive. And the disciples say, well, wait, how can that be? How is that possible? And then Jesus goes in to tell this parable about the unforgiving servant. He says there's a servant who owes the king um, 10,000 talents of gold. That's like an an uncomputable amount of money. Well, I actually tried to compute it. And it's about $13 billion in today's uh, money, right? And so the servant can't pay it back, $13 billion. And so the king asks for his money, the servant doesn't have it, and he begs the king to let him know, to let him to, to forgive him. He's on his knees and he begs the king. And the king has pity. He has compassion for, for this guy and he forgives him his debt and he lets him go. Well, the guy goes down the road, of course. And, and of course, this kind of forgiveness is absolutely ludicrous. It's absurd. $13 billion, he's going to forgive this entire debt, which of course is exactly what God's love and grace is like. It's ludicrous. It's over the top. And instead, so this guy goes down the road then receiving forgiveness of $13 billion and he finds some, one of his fellow slaves who owes him 100 denarii. It's like peanuts compared to this. And instead of showing forgiveness to him, he chokes him and he says, give me my money. I want my $2, right? And then, uh, and then he throws him into debtor's prison. And the king is like, bruh, Really? And so the king forgives him, but, but he doesn't become a forgiving person in response. And then the most hard-hitting part of the story comes at the end. At the end of the story, the king throws the unforgiving servant who had been forgiven into jail. And he doesn't just throw him into jail. He says uh, he throws him over to the jail, jailers to be tortured. And then Jesus says, this is how you'll be treated if you don't forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Ouch. What Jesus is saying, however, is not if you forgive, then God will forgive you. That would be works righteousness. That would be earning your salvation. No, what Jesus is saying is, is the, the degree to which you forgive others shows is a sign or a symbol of how much you have received God's mercy. Um, and so the fact that you did not open your heart in mercy to this servant proves that you did not open your heart to my mercy. Right. So if you can imagine two trees side by side, let's say they're apple trees in October, they should both have fruit on them. Both should have apples. But one of them has apples and the other one does not. We assume that this tree is healthy 
and alive because it has apples on it, and that this tree is diseased or dying because it doesn't have any apples on it. The fruit doesn't give life. The fruit reveals whether or not the tree has life. And there's no better way to tell whether I have received God's grace in my life than whether or not I'm willing to forgive my brother or sister. Okay, so we get this concept. And of course, if we don't forgive, Jesus says we're off to debtor's prison. And frankly, we choose to go lock ourselves up behind spiritual bars. When you stay angry at someone or you hold a grudge, it makes you feel so self-righteous, so such a I'm the victim and so self-centered. And in doing so, you're blocking the effect of the gospel in your life. Holding a grudge or failing to forgive someone, spiritually speaking, is a life or death situation and it's prison. Frederick Buchner, he put it like this. He said, of the seven deadly sins, anger, or say holding a grudge, is the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel. The pain you are giving back to them in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Martin Luther said it this way, holding a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. See, there's no better sign of the spiritual condition of our hearts than whether or not we forgive. So what is the process of forgiveness? How do we do that? And how does it work? Well, there are three parts, and they're all found in verse 27 of Matthew, of Matthew um, 18. It says that out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him his debt. So that means this king had compassion he forgave him his debt, and he let him go. These are a three-step process of forgiveness. To take pity or to have compassion for someone doesn't mean to feel bad for them. Uh, it literally means to have your heart go out to them, to identify with your perpetrator. It's a really hard thing to do. You have to deliberately do the internal work of reminding yourself what you have in common with the person who has offended you. What your heart wants to do is accentuate the differences, right? So, but you must look to identify the, with a person to realize that you're actually the same, that you're really no better than the person who has offended you. So when you're bitter towards someone, what you do is you caricature them. You create a caricature. And a caricature is taking one or two qualities and blowing it up. 
So here is a cartoon caricature of Will Smith taking one or two qualities, what the artist does with goodwill and in good humor, like the ears and the nose, and blowing it up so that that's what you focus on and that's what you see. Well, when you're bitter towards someone, you stay bitter by caricaturing them, which is to create a one-dimensional view, a distorted view, taking one or two things and blowing it up and ignoring the rest. So for example, let's say someone lied to you and, and your friend says, well, why did this person lie to you? And you say, well, because she's just a liar. She's a, she's a liar. That's why she lied to me. And your friend says, well, do you ever lie? And you say, well, yeah, I, yeah, I've lied. I lie on occasion. So does that make you a liar? No, it's complicated, but she's a liar, right? You, you, you see how this works here. We, you kind of take one or two things and you blow it up. I'm not a liar, she's a liar. What it means to have your heart go out to somebody, to have compassion, is to say that I, I'm no different than that person. I struggle in the same way. Uh, I, I, I struggle too. So uh, here's how one, one, of, one great theologian uh, put it, who's an expert on forgiveness uh, from Croatia. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Isn't that perfect? That's exactly what we do. I exclude the enemy from the community of humans who struggle, and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Right? So you can only stay mad at somebody when you continue to stay superior to them. You must have your heart go out to identify or you'll stay in jail, in the jail of our own anger. So, we, so the king took pity on him, and then what did he do? He canceled the debt. And this is the heart of what it means to forgive, and of course the key to understanding this parable is the size of the person's debt, the servant's debt. How much did he owe the king? $13 billion? A ridiculous amount. There's no way that servant could pay it back. He says, I'll work for the rest of my life to pay it back. Well, he could work for the rest of his life and only pay back a small fraction. He would never be able to pay it back. But the servant falls on his knees and promises to pay back everything he knows. Nonetheless, what an absurd promise. If he works for 200,000 years for 40 hours a week, he won't be able to pay it back. And the result, though, of the debt is jeopardizing. We forget to think about the king in this story. He just has $13 billion gone, right? So, so, so this is jeopardizing to him, not only to his personal treasury, but also to his ability to govern. Uh, it cost him his kingdom, this $13 billion. And though the emperor could have sold the family into slavery and seized the assets, lots of money, Though he could have done that, instead he canceled the debt, which, is, which means what? He paid it. He paid it. And that's what forgiveness is. It's a form of suffering. It's paying the debt rather than making the perpetrator pay it. We know that financially when someone, you know, takes money from us and doesn't give us what, we're, what we do, but that also happens in, in, uh, in our character, in our hearts as well. I mean, obviously, let's say you're driving a car, you're driving your car down the road, and someone hits you, you know, and it's their fault, right? 
someone's got to pay for the damage. Either that person or you do. And if you're gracious and merciful and you say, oh, it's okay, it was just an accident, then you've got to pay that debt yourself. And so forgiveness, when, when someone really wrongs you, there's always something that you lose. You lose your reputation. You lose an opportunity. You lose a piece of your heart or your self-esteem by what something that somebody said to you. There's always loss when someone wrongs you. There's always a debt, and you feel it. They owe you something. And you can do one of two things in that moment. One is you can make them pay. You can try to hurt them. You can slander. You can gossip. You can tear them down. Um, always, of course, in the guise of, let me warn you about this person. You could be cold, or you could tell them off, or you could rejoice when something bad happens to them, and when they suffer, it makes you feel like they have paid. But when you make them pay, it only puts you in jail. Your anger deepens, and it gets worse. Or you pay. When you want to slice them up, you simply refuse. You identify them with them, and you just refuse to tell them off. Now, there might be certain things that they ne you need to address with that person, but you don't try to hurt them. This is an act of the will. You act despite how you're feeling. So, in the Bible, we always grant forgiveness before we feel it, uh, if we wait till we feel it, it'll never happen. Uh, but we grant forgiveness, and then our hearts begin to soften. Uh, and so, so the king took pity on him. He canceled the debt, and he let him go. I'm almost done. If you forgive someone who has wronged you, the thought might occur to you, hey, this person, um, you know, forgiving this person might not be enough. He, this person keeps on doing wrong over and over and over again. They keep doing it. And for the sake of others and for this person, because it's never loving to, you know, enable somebody to keep on sinning, I think someone needs to stop this person and to confront or to wake this person up to get restitution. And sometimes that's right and important to do. But people will often say, I can't forgive until I get justice. I have to get justice first, and then I can forgive. But it doesn't really work that way. Justice is not contingent, or forgiveness is not contingent upon justice. Jesus was unjustly accused. He hung on the cross, and while he was being murdered, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Because in the act of forgiveness, you set yourself free. So when you forgive someone in, in your heart, you release them, you let them go. And then your work towards justice can actually be quite effective. Um, because you're more differentiated in that space. But if you wait for justice first, you will punish yourself on top of being abused by someone else. So once you have granted forgiveness, then you can think about working for justice. So where do we get the motivation to assume the suffering that comes with forgiveness? The only way that you and I are going to find the wherewithal to take pity on our perpetrators, to cancel the debt, and to let them go, as if we focus our eyes and our attention on the beauty of the, of the king who became a servant, the one who was unjustly treated on the cross, 
and who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. When we reflect on our lifetime of transgressions and the grace that comes to us, only then can we be able to identify with those who hurt us and to forgive them. And so as we, as we pray, we remember, we remember that we fall short. Uh, we remember that we, we miss the mark, that we trespass, and that we are indebted to God. But praise be to God that God in Jesus Christ is our Redeemer and has forgiven us. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy. May it rub off on us deeply. May we fully open our hearts to receive it so that we would be merciful and be part of the healing of the world that you call us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.